Good morning. I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. We are in week seven and the final week of our series going through the book of First John, entitled Because He First Loved Us. And we looked at quite a bit so far. We looked at some pretty big themes, discussed a lot of big ideas. And so I think it's important that we kind of revisit some of those big themes to really make sure we wrap it all together, that we tie it all together, that we have a lot to leave with before we start moving on next week. So when it comes to the past few weeks, we've talked about several things. First things first, the tests of faith. John identifies three different tests of faith throughout 1 John. He identifies belief, he identifies love, and he identifies obedience. And the test of belief is exactly what it sounds like. It's do you believe in who Jesus is? Do you believe that which was heard from the beginning? Do you believe the teaching of the apostles about the identity of Jesus? What Jesus did, who Jesus was, what Jesus did for you, and what he's doing right now, and what he's going to do in the future. Do you believe those things? Are you able to tell good teaching from bad teaching? That's part of what John is getting at. The test of love is simply the idea, do you love God, do you love your brothers and your sisters? And John goes so far as saying that if you don't love your brothers and your sisters, yet you claim to love God, you're seriously misguided. And you can't love God. You can't know God if you don't love your brothers and your sisters. And then with the test of obedience, John makes it clear. If you're a child of God, if you've been adopted by God as his son or as his daughter, you are called to live a life that reflects well of him. Not because you're trying to earn favor with him, not because you're trying to earn standing with him, not because you're just trying to impress people with how spiritual you are and how wonderful a Christian you are. Rather, you do it to glorify your father. You obey him. The second big theme we talked about is our adoption as God's children. This is something that is purely by God's grace, purely by God's mercy. It's not because we met the right prerequisites. It's not because we deserved it. In fact, we deserve to not be children of God, and yet God adopts us anyway. The third theme, the idea of responding to false teaching and false teachers. We talked about how if you took your kid to an expensive private school and they came home saying that 2 plus 2 equals 5, you would probably not be very happy. You'd probably go and confront the teacher. You'd probably change schools or change teachers, and then you'd warn your friends and warn your family about that teacher. Same with a bad coach who was teaching your child something completely off base with their sport. Maybe it's a doctor who tells you something that makes no sense whatsoever to try and heal an injury. When you encounter these people, you don't just continue learning under them. You don't just continue listening to them. You don't recommend them to people that you care about. You run away from them. And yet when it comes to spiritual teaching, when it comes to biblical teaching, when it comes to our faith, we often don't say a word. As false teachers continue teaching, as false teaching continues advancing amongst those we care about, we almost act as if our academics or our athletics or even our physical health is more important than our spiritual health. The fourth theme was the idea of leaning on the Holy Spirit. As we as followers of Christ strive to follow Jesus, as we strive to follow the will of God in our lives, it can be extremely difficult. It can be a challenge. And we can't do it on our own strength. We can't do it on our own ability. We lean on the Holy Spirit instead. 
We lean on the Holy Spirit for discernment, that he might help us identify good teaching and bad teaching and good teachers and bad teachers. We lean on the Holy Spirit for love, that he might help us learn to love one another, that he might help us learn to love God. And we lean on the Holy Spirit for perseverance. That when things get tough, when life gets hard, we have this deposit inside of us, given to us by God, to help anchor us to the faith. Now, it's a lot to take in all at once. It's a lot that we've discussed so far, but I wanted to wrap it up really quickly before we get into today's stuff or talk about next week's stuff. Now, that being said, next week, I'm really excited about. We're going to be starting a new sermon series, kind of discussing who we are as a church. Over the past several months, the elders and I have been talking and praying and discussing, and we have formulated what we believe is a new mission and a new vision for Prairie View Christian Church. It's not that we're not happy with the ones that we have right now. We're just rewording things to kind of refocus ourselves on what really matters. So the mission is going to be what we want to accomplish. The vision is how we're going to accomplish it. But then we've also developed values, things that we believe we must hold to, that we must emphasize if we're going to accomplish our mission. It's going to be an important sermon series. It's going to play a big role in helping determine the direction that our church goes in the coming years. And so I'm excited about it. I hope that you'll be a part of it. I hope that you can be on board with it. And that'll be starting next week. Now, before we really get moving today, I want to ask a question. And that's this. It's a question that we've all kind of wrestled with at some point in our lives or will wrestle with at some point in our lives. The question is, what is faith? What is faith? It's a big question. It's an open-ended question. It's a difficult question to answer. And there are a lot of people out there wrestling with that question this very moment. If you're a Christian, you've probably wrestled with that question at some point in your life. You've sat back and wondered what this is all about, what life is all about. Is there something bigger than me out there? Is this really all there is? And so you've asked that question of what is faith? Maybe you're asking that question this very second. You've been a Christian for a while, but some things have come up in your life and you're kind of wondering, what is this? What's this all about? What's the point? Is this really all there is? Or maybe you're someone who you've already asked that question earlier in life and you've said, you know what, I'm just not into it. I'm not going to make fun of anybody who is. I'm not going to criticize people who are. But you know what, it's just not for me. Every single one of us at some point wrestles with that question. And a lot of us wrestle with that question more than once in life. What is faith? Now there's a lot of different answers out there to that question of what is faith? Some people say that faith is nothing more than ignorance. It's what you have when you can't explain something. And that's why all these indigenous tribes develop religions and develop gods. It's only because they don't have our science. They don't have our technology. And so they just use faith as an excuse to explain things that they don't understand. Some people say that faith is just a crutch. It's something that you believe. It's something that you have because you just can't come to grips with the fact that This life is all there is. That life really isn't all that important. That nothing happens after you die. That we're nothing more than animals. So faith is just something that person holds to, to give their life significance. To give them fulfillment because they can't really face down the fact that this is all there is. Some people say that faith is a crutch. And then of course for Christians, faith, it can just kind of be our excuse answer in Sunday school. 
Sunday school teacher asks a question, small group leader asks a question, we don't know what to say, and so we just say, faith. You just got to have faith. It's our go-to answer when we don't know what to say. But the truth is that faith is bigger than all of those things. And we're going to talk about that here in just a second. But really, when you think about it, at its core, at its roots, faith is belief in testimony. It's belief in testimony. And it's something that every single one of us, every single person, deals with in our lives. Whether we're a Christian or not, whether we're religious or not, we all wrestle with faith. When you're driving in your car and you cross over a bridge, you have faith that bridge is going to hold you up. You don't know for sure that's going to hold you up. You don't have an engineering degree. You didn't put the bridge together. You don't know what kind of wear and tear that bridge has had. And yet you have faith that the bridge will hold you. Probably because your experience says that, you know, in my life I've gone over hundreds of bridges, thousands of bridges, and none of them have ever collapsed before. So I'm just going to have faith that this one isn't going to collapse either. But you don't really know. You don't know for sure. This could be the one time that that bridge doesn't hold you up. Another example is the weather. We turn on the TV, the weatherman says it's going to be 40 and rainy, and so we put on our coat, we put on our rain boots, we put on our hat. We may not even look out the window, but we have faith in the weatherman. We trust that his testimony is accurate. We trust that his testimony is good. We don't have a meteorology degree. We're not some farmers that can stick our finger in our mouth and magically tell what the weather is going to be like for the next six months. We just trust the weatherman's testimony. But we don't know that he's going to be right. Every single one of us, in little ways or in big ways, we wrestle with faith on a daily basis, if we're willing to be honest with ourselves. Now, when it comes to this idea of Christian faith specifically, not just generic faith, but Christian faith, we're going to see today that Christian faith is belief not just in any testimony, but in God's testimony. Specifically, faith is belief in God's testimony about who Jesus is. And for the Christian, this faith that we have assures us of eternal life. That's where we're going to be today in 1 John chapter 5, if you'd like to follow along with me. We're not going to have every single verse up on the screen, so make sure you have a Bible in your lap, or you're using your phone, or you're using a Bible from a neighbor. If you don't have one, grab one from the welcome desk, and you can take it home with you. But 1 John chapter 5, we're going to read verses 6 through 21. But before we do that, I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with. Thank you for your word. God, we've learned quite a bit in this first John series. We've discussed a lot of heavy topics from a lot of different angles. But God, we know that it's there for a reason, and you've put first John in our Bibles because it is useful to us. It's useful for building us up, for holding us accountable, for convicting us, and God, we thank you for that. And I pray that as we finish up first John that we will truly allow it to continue shaping our hearts and shaping our minds the way it has over the past six weeks. God, be with all of us today. Help us to keep our eyes focused on you, to purify our hearts, to cleanse our minds, and help us truly leave here more humbled by your grace than we were before. God, we love you. We honor you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, First John chapter 5, verse 6. I'm going to read verses 6 through 10 if you'll follow along with me. 
This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So Christian faith, again, is belief in testimony. It's belief in God's testimony about Jesus. But what exactly is God's testimony about Jesus in the first place? Well, back earlier in the sermon series, we talked about the famous Nicene Creed, this famous statement in church history that really summed up who Jesus is. And to this day, that creed is often the barometer of what a right understanding of Jesus is. And that creed makes it clear that the testimony about Jesus is that he came in the flesh. He was fully God and fully man. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross as the propitiation, that big word that we've talked about, this sacrifice that takes away wrath. He died on the cross for sins. He physically rose from the dead. Now, this is an important one. This wasn't a metaphorical resurrection. It wasn't a symbolic resurrection. It wasn't a spiritual resurrection. Jesus was dead. His body was dead. And then he came back to life, a physical resurrection. Jesus ascended to be with God. He's reigning at the right hand of God at this very moment, and he will return in power and in glory and establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And we look forward to that day. This is the testimony about Jesus. This is that which was heard from the beginning. This is that core idea that John wants to drill into people's heads to make sure that they have a right understanding of who Jesus is and what he did and what he's doing and what he will do. John then cites three different things here. He cites the water and the blood and the spirit. Now the water is probably referring to Jesus' baptism. Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. Everyone's blown away by this. And then the voice of God says, Behold, my son, with him I am well pleased. And from that point forward, Jesus' ministry begins. John's probably citing this water to emphasize Jesus' humanity. That he truly was man and he truly was God. He cites the blood, talking about the death of Jesus, the blood that was shed, the body that was broken for you and for me. And then he cites the spirit, the spirit that's been given to you and to me and to other followers of Jesus. John says that these three things testify to who Jesus is. And these three things fly directly in the face of the false teachers that John is dealing with. Some of these false teachers had some pretty messed up understandings about who Jesus was. They had some pretty messed up ideas about what Jesus did and how this all works out. And John is purposely countering those guys. He's saying, stick with what you heard. Stick with what you were taught. Stick with the true testimony about Jesus. But then John goes farther. 
He says, you know, as great as this testimony is, don't believe this because I'm telling you this. Don't believe this because the other apostles are telling you this. This testimony is not just my testimony. This testimony is God's testimony. And John says, you know, if you don't believe me, that's one thing. If you don't believe the other apostles, that's another thing. But here's the problem. When you don't believe this testimony about Jesus, you're not believing God himself. And John says the last thing you want to do, the last position you want to find yourselves in, is making God out to be a liar. John Stott wrote this, Unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied, it is a sin to be deplored. John's point is that this testimony about Jesus comes from God. Therefore, if you don't believe it, if I don't believe it, if we don't believe it, we are claiming to be smarter than the God of the universe. And if we're wrong, that's a set of shoes that we don't want to be in. And then finally, John says that whoever has this testimony, whoever believes this testimony in Jesus, has the Spirit in himself. We talked about several weeks ago the idea of this anointing, how this anointing abides in us, how it remains and dwells in us. It's in close and settled union with our hearts and our minds. And the fact that we believe this testimony about Jesus gives proof to the fact that the Spirit is living inside of us. He's transforming us. He's changing us. He's purifying our hearts and purifying our minds. And we have more faith in the testimony every single day because this anointing dwells in us. Let's pick back up in our passage. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, if you'd like to start following along there. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So the first thing is that belief in the testimony of God is specifically about the testimony of Jesus. But then on top of that, this testimony about Jesus that we place our faith in, that we believe as Christians, it leads to eternal life. And John makes one thing clear, that eternal life, it's a gift. It doesn't say that God owed it to us. He doesn't say that God simply offered it to us. He says that it is a gift to us. Paul reemphasizes that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, we read in that passage, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This gift that we've been given, this gift of eternal life, this gift of salvation, is not through anything we've done. It's not through anything we deserve. It is purely out of grace and purely out of mercy. And Paul makes it clear this gift you've been given is not because you've done good things. It's rather so that you can do good things, so that you can serve God, so that you can accomplish good works. You are still saved by grace. You are still saved by mercy, but you're saved for a purpose. And this gift of eternal life, it truly is by grace. It truly is undeserved. And in fact, if we 
look at our actions, and we look at our lives, and we say, you know what? I wonder if I deserve salvation. If we're realistic, if we have a true understanding of ourselves, that should only serve to emphasize just how much we need grace, just how much we need mercy. I was recently reading a story about Napoleon, who was the French ruler, very short guy, if you don't know that, very short guy. But Napoleon, there's a legend that says that a guard stationed around his palace fell asleep. Young man, he was tired, he was worn out, he was weary, he was far away from home. He was supposed to be guarding an entrance to the palace, and he fell asleep. Well, if you fall asleep at your post, you're putting Napoleon's life in danger. Someone could have snuck in. Someone could have killed the most important man in the country. So this young man is caught sleeping on the job. He's brought into court. He's determined to be guilty, and he's sentenced to death. Well, the young man's mom hears that her son is about to be put to death. And so the legend has it that she goes to Napoleon. She gets a hearing with Napoleon himself. And she begs Napoleon to have mercy on her son. She begs Napoleon not to kill her son. He's all that she has left. He's her only way of providing for herself. She's a widow and he's her only child. She is just absolutely begging Napoleon to spare her son. And the legend has it that the exchange went something like this. Napoleon said to her, Madam, your son does not deserve mercy. He deserves to die. Pretty cold statement there from Napoleon to this grieving mother. But the mother responds, of course, sire, you are right. That's why I'm asking you to show mercy on him. If he were deserving, it wouldn't be mercy. The legend has it that Napoleon was so moved by this woman's understanding of grace. She was so moved by this woman's explanation of grace that he let the young man go. Grace is purely a gift. Eternal life is purely a gift. None of us deserve it, and yet God has given it to us. And we rejoice in that. But then John says another thing about eternal life here. He says that eternal life, this gift of God, is found in Christ alone. Now John makes another black and white statement. He's made tons of black and white statements all throughout the book, whether it's life or death or light and darkness. And he says here that those who have Christ have eternal life, and those who don't do not have eternal life. John makes it clear. He doesn't make any bones about it. And the question is for us, do we really believe that? Do we really believe it's that simple? Because if so... If we do believe that, one would think that that would make us a little bit more urgent to share the testimony that we have. It would make us a little bit more eager to share the testimony about Jesus that we've received, that which was heard from the beginning. Do we really believe that? If so, it should be the highest priority that we could possibly imagine, to share that with anyone and everyone around us, anyone and everyone who will hear And you know, it may sound politically incorrect. Some people don't like the idea of John 14, 6, where Jesus says that I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes through the Father except through me. Those who quote it are labeled as intolerant. They're labeled as closed-minded. They're labeled as old-fashioned. It's politically incorrect. Yet sharing this politically incorrect truth, 
sharing this statement that only through Jesus can you have eternal life, that may be the most loving thing that we could ever share. It may be the most loving thing possible to be politically incorrect. It may be the most loving thing possible to come across as closed-minded. Because this statement is the most important testimony that anyone, anywhere, could ever hear. Finally, this eternal life is a present reality. You know, sometimes we hear eternal life in the church, we talk about eternal life, and we kind of treat it like it's this ticket that we put in our pocket when we become followers of Jesus, and we cash it in when we die. We have this eternal life, we just kind of save it, and then when that moment comes that we die, we give it to God and say, see, look, I have this ticket, I've been saving it, so now I can have eternal life. But here's the problem. John does not say that God will give us eternal life when we die. He doesn't say that God will save it for us. He doesn't say that it's reserved, but we can't really take advantage of it yet. John says that we have eternal life at this very moment. Right now, believers in Jesus have eternal life. You and I, we have eternal life right now. And that should change the way we live right now. We preach more boldly. We serve more joyfully. We seek first the kingdom of God and don't worry so much about the things that don't really matter. Because this eternal life is changing us. And this eternal life is something that no one can take away from us. No matter what happens in this life, no matter what kind of chaos that we're facing, no matter what kind of problems that we're dealing with, this eternal life is here. And we trust in it. And it is a gift. And it challenges us and it encourages us and it strengthens us to follow Jesus more closely. To look to him more and more every single day. You know, recently I heard a story that I've heard before, but it's from a guy named Jim Elliott. And Jim Elliott was a missionary to foreign countries, preaching the gospel to people that had never, ever heard the gospel. Ever. People that had never even been seen before are hearing the gospel. And at one point, as Jim Elliott is going down, one of his companions says to him, Now, Jim, I don't want to discourage you. I'm not trying to talk you off the edge or anything. I admire what you're doing. But what if one of these days you go to preach the gospel to these people and they're hostile? What are you going to do? What if they don't want to hear you? What if they try to hurt you? What if they try to kill you? What do you do then? And Jim Elliott said, you know, that could happen, but I know where I'm going. I don't know where they're going. Jim Elliott knew that he had eternal life right then and right there. And it changed everything for him. His life was different. He was more brave. He was more strong. He was more courageous because he knew that he had eternal life and no one could take that away from him. Let's have that same boldness. Let's have that same courage. Let's have that same strength. Let's have that same bravery. Because the testimony about Jesus, this gift of eternal life, it will not let us down. Finally, look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, finishing out the passage. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. 
to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the last few words that John shares. And the idea seems to be this. There's some strange statements in there, but as you tie it all together, the testimony of Jesus, this testimony that we place our faith in, it changes us from the inside out. You know, I'm going to get a little bit vulnerable here. When I was a kid, one of my biggest fears was lobsters living under my bed. And the reason I believe that, I don't know why I believe that, but I would get up in the middle of the night if I had to get a drink of water, had to go to the bathroom, and I would go down the hall, do whatever I needed to do, and then when I would come back into my room, I would be so scared of the lobsters pinching my toes that I would get a running start and jump into bed from like five feet away. That way my toes wouldn't go under the bed and then they wouldn't get pinched by the lobsters that naturally, logically, probably are there. They only come out at night, though. But here's the thing. As goofy as it sounds, as strange as it sounds that I believed this, I believed it so much that it changed the way I live. I believed that so much that I couldn't just put my toes underneath the bed because I knew it was dangerous. That's how much faith I had in this truth. And when we believe the testimony about Jesus, it changes us. We live in this society that tries to separate belief from behavior, but you simply can't do that. Your behavior reflects your beliefs. This testimony about Jesus changes us. It changes our prayer life. We pray with confidence, knowing that God hears us. But even more telling than that, the change that occurs in our prayer life as the Spirit works on us, as this testimony bears fruit in us, look at the prayer. John says that we pray knowing that God answers us according to his will. The person who's being transformed, the person who's being changed, is not the person who asks for the Corvette. It's not the person who asks for the attractive husband or wife. It's the person who asks that God will be done. It's the person who asks that God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's when you know someone's being changed. That's when you know someone's being transformed. Their prayers aren't about selfish desires. Their prayers aren't about selfish wants. But rather they're about the will of God being done in the world around them. Another thing, we pray for our brothers and our sisters dealing with sin. You know, there's this kind of confusing statement here in these final few verses about sin that leads to death and sin that doesn't lead to death. And we all get caught up in it. We say, now, wait a minute. What is the sin that leads to death? Am I doing it? I don't even know what it is. And then we say, well, wait a minute. What is the sin that doesn't lead to death? Does this mean that I can commit this sin and I don't really have to be too worried about it? Well, here's the thing. Don't miss the forest looking at the trees. The idea is this. Pray for your brothers and your sisters who are wrestling with sin. 
Every single one of us does. Every single one of us is right now. We may sit back and say that, tell you what, man, his over there, it's a little bit more serious than mine. I know that. That's not the point. Every single one of us deals with sin, and we pray for one another. We pray that we repent. We pray that we change. We pray that we trust more in God's grace. And we pray that our lives look different. We pray for those who don't know Jesus, that they might come to know him, that God might reveal himself to them. We pray for our brothers and our sisters who may make a little bit more of a habit of sin than we think they should. Maybe it's not just a one-time dealing. Maybe it's a consistent pattern. Well, we pray for those people too. We pray that repentance might come. John reiterates that we no longer keep sinning. We no longer are content with our sin. We no longer seem to be okay with it living inside of us. We continually fight it. We continually battle it, knowing that even when we fall short, we trust in grace, but we are not content to let it live in us. We are not content to let it just continue bearing horrible fruit in our lives. And we abandon our idols. Those things that we place ahead of God, those things that take our eyes away from God, those things that we're tempted to worship, we abandon those things. We throw them out the window. We refuse to let them entertain us anymore. And we do all this knowing that God has adopted us as his sons, as his daughters, knowing that God is watching over us, knowing that this eternal life that we've been given, no one can take it away from us. And we find assurance in that. We find hope in that. We find strength in that. We find courage in that. We find boldness in that. To seek first the kingdom of God, knowing that eternal life is here right now. And it's waiting for us, too. Closing out our sermon today, it wouldn't be a sermon on faith if we didn't look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But then the writer of Hebrews goes on even farther. And all of chapter 11 is basically this giant list of these heroes of faith. These people that little kids grew up looking up to, wanting to be like. Look at verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept relief so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. All these heroes, all these stories, all these people that people look up to in the Old Testament, they want to be like them, the kids want to be like them. And yet the writer of Hebrews says, as great as these heroes are, 
as commended as they are, they don't have the promise that you and I have. They haven't seen the cross. They didn't get to see Jesus. They died before Jesus ever came on the scene in the form of a man. And yet look at the faith they had. How much more so should our faith change us? What kind of faith should we have? Having seen what they didn't get to see. Look at the boldness, the strength that they had. How much more boldness and strength should we have? If you're a Christian, what are you facing right now in your life that requires faith? It could be a lot of things. It could be a job change. It could be illness. It could be marital problems. It could be a broken relationship with someone you care about. My encouragement to you is this. Be bold. Be strong. Be courageous. Because you have eternal life living inside of you. And no one can take that away from you. Know that no matter what happens, God is holding you in his hand. Have faith. Be strong. Be brave. If you're not a Christian, I challenge you to examine the evidence. Examine the testimony about Jesus. Out on the welcome desk, we have a book by Tim Keller called The Reason for God that might be a good introduction for you if you're wrestling with that initial question of what is faith? What is this all about? What does this all mean? Take up one of those before you leave today. Wrestle with that testimony of who Jesus is. Wrestle with it openly. Wrestle with it honestly. And let it change you. Christian faith, at its core, is belief in the testimony about Jesus. It's not my testimony It's not this church's testimony, it's God's testimony. And this testimony, for those who believe it, it assures us of eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the testimony that you've given us. Thank you that your spirit is is working in us. It's helping us to become people who are, every single day, putting more trust and more belief and the identity of your son, Jesus. God, thank you that your testimony is helping us to love one another. Thank you that your testimony is helping us to obey. God, I pray that we'll be bold, that we'll be strong, that we'll be courageous, because the faith that you've given us, the love that you've given us, the testimony that you've given us, it's too great to hold back. It's too great to be scared to share it. God, we love you. We are humbled by you. We don't deserve anything you've given us, and yet you bless us beyond anything we can believe. God, I pray that we'll share that with others. God, I love you. I praise you. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe you already have placed your faith in Christ. Maybe you already have believed God's testimony about Jesus, but you're going through a really difficult, rough time right now. Talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to talk with you, pray with you. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're wondering what this all means, what this question about faith really is, and you have questions and you're confused and you're worried, you don't know what this all entails, they'd be happy to talk to you about that too and help you along in that decision. Joyful, joyful